If you or someone you know would like to learn more or get involved in any of our research projects, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca. Sepsis is a life-threatening illness caused by your body's overwhelming response to an infection. UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. Shannon McKenney not only had sepsis once, but three times. She went from being a carefree and active musician to being unable to function daily. She now wishes to take her lived experience with sepsis to work alongside research networks in the field. To learn more about her story, I encourage you to listen to episode one of this series. Today, I am joined by two renowned leaders in patient-oriented research. From the BC Support Unit, Research Services Lead, Larry Moraz, and Knowledge Translation Lead, Lynn Feehan. Welcome, Lynn and Larry. Lynn, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the BC Support Unit? Great. Thank you. And uh, thank you for this opportunity to join you today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Lynn Feehan uh, and I am from the BC Support Unit and maybe I'll give a brief introduction to what that is. And so the BC Support Unit is a Canadian Institute of Health Research funded organization. And our role uh, is to basically just support health researchers in BC to build capacity to engage with patient partners throughout the research process. So we're one of 11 similar units across Canada. So we're from the the British Columbia version. And both Larry and I are based in Vancouver. Um, And so my role at the BC Support Unit is the knowledge translation lead. And I have a background as a physiotherapist. I am a clinician and I also have research training, but my passion is knowledge translation. And that's really helping us to try and understand how do we make sure that the research that's being done in health research is actually being used in the health system. And so that's what knowledge translation is about. And that's kind of what my role is, is to make sure that the research in BC is not only engaging patient partners, but also um, focusing on doing research that's likely to going to be used in the health system. So that's a my my who I am and who the BC support unit is. Larry, do you want to introduce yourself? Great. Thanks, Lynn. I'm Larry, and I'm the uh, research services lead for the BC support unit. Uh, my background is also in research, like Lynn. Um, uh, my area of research was nutrition, and I studied diet and prostate cancer for many years before um, joining the support unit. My role at the support unit as research services lead is um, to, to really build out, as Lynn said, the patient voice in health research in BC. So I do a lot of consultations with researchers and with patient partners to help, help, them, help them to sort of plan and conduct their patient-oriented research. Well, that me- brings me to... The first question then, what is patient-oriented research? So, I mean, there is a, if you go to the, to the CIHR website, the, 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 the definition of patient-oriented research includes some very key features. One is that you're exploring research that's relevant to patients and to the public. Secondly, that you're measuring outcomes that are important to them. Um, and then another big piece of this is that you are including patients as team members. That is, they're helping you make research decisions on your research team. 
unlike the real traditional way of doing research where patients are only participants in a study, you, you recruit them and they, they provide data. But with patient-oriented research, patients become partners. They become members of the research team. They help you make decisions. Is there anything I left out of that definition, Len? Well, um, not really. Those are the key points that uh, patients are sort of, you know, the key partners with researchers. But the other piece about patient-oriented research and in the focus is making sure that researchers also partner in a very meaningful way with the clinicians in the health system, as well as the decision makers in the health system, because it's nice to have the patient perspective and it's essential for patient-oriented research. But if you're not also engaging with the clinicians that are going to be doing the research or applying the research, and you're also not including the voices and the perspectives of the people in the health system that are providing the decisions around what's being funded and when, then the likelihood that that research, even if it's done in partnership with patients, going to be used in the health system um, is, is much lower. And so patient-oriented research, we talk about our four, four team members, the researchers, the patient partners, the clinicians, and the uh, healthcare decision makers. So all four of those are essentially needed and crucial in the in in a in a successful research model then can can I give you an example my one of my favorite ones um, back in my nutrition days there was this great diabetes intervention that was developed um, it was developed by researchers they saw an, a, a research need they created a research question they developed an intervention and they tested it and it worked great and then they thought well we'll just give it to the diabetes world and see what happens it wasn't taken up. It was ignored. Um, and when they did some research to find out why, they discovered that the patients it, it didn't like it, didn't match what their needs were. Um, and then the nutritionists and the, and the in, um, care providers, they didn't understand how that would be different or better than what they were, norm they were doing already. So they just ignored it. So ultimately, this entire research project died because they didn't ask at the beginning what was going to be relevant, what, would, what outcomes are going to be important. If they had done that, then they, they might have had a successful intervention. So an example of that would have been possibly to conduct a survey prior to running that particular project? Yeah, or even having, uh, you know, having a patient and a nutritionist on their research team to say, you know, what are things, are, what sort of interventions are going to work for you? How will we make sure that when we develop this intervention, it's going to be meaningful to you? Because if you don't have the people that are going to use the knowledge at the table when you're creating the knowledge, how can you expect it to be useful? You know, when Apple designs a new iPhone, or they, they have people, when they're designing their batteries, they have um, consumers coming into a t into a roundtable discussion to find out what sort of aspects of of this uh, of the tool are going to be important to them. Yeah, and I think this touches on this concept that patient oriented research is more than just having patient partners on the research team or the research project. It's about meaningfully engaging the patient's perspectives and the other you know clinicians and healthcare providers' perspectives into the whole research process. Mm -hmm. So it's the priority setting, it's the planning for, it's the design of, it's the conducting, it's mm -hmm. the implementation, like all of those phases and stages of the research process is, is about meaningful partnership and engagement mm -hmm. and where people are really supporting the decisions throughout the whole process. And it's also um, not just in the development of a research design, but in research organizations are the patient's perspectives and, and priorities being considered 
in a research institute? You know, are they deciding what the overall direction of that organization is, or are they also supporting funding? You know, what projects are going to be funded? So it's a very sort of diverse way of including patients into the research process, but it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's all encompassing. It's not just the research team and having that one or two patient partners on the team. It's really about building out that throughout the whole research perspective. Mm-hmm. And this may seem like a loaded question when I ask this question, but this to me, and, and I mean, I haven't been doing this a very long time. I think I've been doing it about six years. Um, this seems to me like this is a fairly new concept, um, but it shouldn't be a fairly new concept in, in getting patients more actively involved in research. Am I right in, in saying that? Well, you know, in some ways it is. I mean, certainly the strategy for patient-oriented research, that's the, the overarching strategy that the Canadian Institutes for Health Research came up with. That's, that's new in the sense that it's bringing together these ideas and concepts into one sort of strategy. But some of the concepts involving community members in research, for example, have existed for quite a long time. So we think of community-based research or participatory action research that have a tradition of engaging members of the community in that work. But what's different here is that in health research, the traditional way of doing health research has been very researcher driven. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had, especially haven't had care providers and the policymakers involved in the, in the work. And so I think that's probably the, uh, a new piece of that. But some of the concepts are, are not all that new. It's just how, how we're applying them. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, I, and the other thing is, is that it's kind of newer in Canada and that the strategy mm-hmm. has sort of been a primary focus and one that's been reasonably well funded through the Canadian Institute of Health Research. Uh, but other countries have, you know, sort of launched into this whole public engagement and patient engagement and research earlier. And so, you know, I would say the Involve kind of uh, approach in the network in the United Kingdom has mm-hmm. been at this for much longer yep. um, and has evolved from sort of the, you know, public engagement across many initiatives, not just research itself. And also the PCORI group, which is it's an acronym and I can't even remember what it actually stands for, but it's a similar <laughs> approach across um, the U.S. And then we also have, you know, Australia. So there's a number of countries that are adopting this strategy. We just use the term in Canada patient oriented approach. But, yeah, I'd say we're not brand, brand new, but we're certainly learning as we go and uh, we're evolving. And, you know, I think even in the sort of five to seven years that we've been really focusing on this, I think we've evolved quite a lot, but mm-hmm. we've got a long way to go as well. Mm-hmm. And what are the different levels in which patients can engage in research? So we we did touch on a, on a few pieces of that with being involved in in research studies, like Larry had mentioned around that diabetes study. But what are some of the other ways? I, I mean, for example, I, for for me, I, I sit on um, I sit as an advisor um, with another with a number of um, research. Um, clusters, as well as with um, Alberta Health Services. Uh, but there's other ways that patients can be involved in in research and at different levels. And what are some of those other ways that patients can be involved? I'll start. Um, so you're absolutely right. Patient, we, the way we envision patient engagement in this work is throughout every aspect of the work we do. So for example, as you're an advisor with um, Alberta Health Services, in the BC support unit, we have patient partners that help us 
in almost all of our decision making, all our major decision making, how we hire people, for example. Um, but then in, in, in looking at sort of overarching research programs, you can have that sort of governance across programs as well, so that patient partners are guiding how programs are developed, how they decide on funding um, priorities, how they uh, deliver their deliver their um, funding, for example. And just in a, one of the examples, I think that's that Lynn and I've been working on lately a lot is is helping to build out um, patient or family partners as peer reviewers in funding review, grant review mm -hmm. processes. Um, and so it's, it's not just being a partner on a research project, but it's, it's how is that research being conducted as well? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, we talk about there's many, many opportunities within this world of research and health research where patient partners not only could be engaged, but should be engaged. And that's really what we're, we're speaking to. And the other thing is not just that there's many opportunities or different types of engagement across the research spectrum. We also know that there's different, you know, levels of engagement. Um, so to what degree is the person that you're engaging with actually informing and supporting decisions? And so, we, you know, we talk about levels of engagement at, at sort of the informed level at this where we've kind of lived in that world in research before as, as researchers, we like to say this is the research we've done and then inform members of the public or clinicians what we've done. But at that level, you know, patient partners may be involved in, you know, sort of helping share some of that information, like it's an information sharing piece, but it's not really involved in meaningful decision making. And then at the higher level that Larry mentioned is there's, there's, there is a very strong tradition of, of community-led research where the communities themselves are actually empowered and leading not only the priorities, but what is the research. And so there's that, those two bookends of levels of engagement where, you know, the patients and public partners are either fully running the show and the researchers are, you know, actually supporting and working with them to do the research that they're addressing or just at that other end that inform. But where we're working at in the, in the uh, support units across Canada is building in at the level of in, involve or collaboration. And that means meaningful, what we call meaningful collaboration. And as Larry mentioned, it's about are your patient partners actually informing day-to-day -day decisions? Are they part of the team? Are they informing? Are they make, Is their input being heard? Is it being used? And so it's that meaningful, actual engagement of, of people that to, to inform those decisions. And that's kind of, you know, we aim and strive for supporting, you know, patient-led. But, you know, in reality, we're not quite there in health research. So we're trying to move from where we've been working in the last you know, 10 years at the informed level to at least bringing the patient partnerships in at a more meaningful level of, of, of actual collaboration. Right. And so what are, what are some of the ways that then you, uh, I guess, resources and supports then do you offer those patients to get to that level? Because as a new patient coming in, it's very, I guess the the right word would be intimidating coming in as a patient. First of all, having lived experience and for a lot of patients, having lived experience comes with levels of trauma um, that would in some ways there's there in some for some and there's anger at the health system um, that needs to be resolved before you can actively participate in meaningful engagement and research. Um, so what types of, 
of supports are available in the sense of having a patient work their way up to become that patient led um re- like patient led partner patient led patient researcher patient led scientist i suppose in order to get them from that entry level you know that, that this is so true and the power imbalance that exists when a patient comes into a, a research team meeting can be really daunting. And I see that as, as a real stumbling block for a lot of researchers when they're starting out. So I think that one of the key, the key things that has to, to be um, uh, thought of when beginning this for new, for uh, first timers, both first, first timer researchers and first timer patient partners is to really get an understanding of where everyone is at in terms of their comfort levels and their skill levels, and then developing a, a, a for the lack of a better word, some sort of training, a training program for both the partners and the researchers to learn how to work together to learn how they can climb that ladder that Lynn was talking about from informing someone up to collaborating with them, because you can't expect anybody to do this without having any experience or training to do it. So, and I, and I think I probably say this all the time and Lynn probably laugh, is probably laughing right now um, is I say baby steps, baby steps, you know, that you start off small and that your very first engagement is going to be informed because you have to bring everybody up to the same level of understanding of what the research is about, for example, um, and how you're going to approach the research. So training, this is what, this is what Lynn and I do on a daily basis. You know, we work with uh, researchers and research teams and patient partners and clinicians, and occasionally the policy advisor who comes to these training sessions. Um, And we figure out what is the train, what are the training needs? How do we develop this so that maybe you're going to start off with a very low level of engagement, but you're going to build on your successes over time, build the skills and knowledge and all those things that are necessary to be successful. And then when you do get to a point where you can really tackle some more technical or, um, you know, um, scientifically heavy topics, then the patient partner is um, able to do it, right? has the capacity to do it. And the, the researchers know how to help them. And so it's, it does take a lot of time and there's no sort of, recipe for it. Yeah. And and I think something that Larry and I often stress is that patient-oriented research, it's an approach. It's not a method. There is no recipe. There's no, there's no handbooks. (laughs) You know, there's lots of resources and potential supports out there, but you know, the other one that Larry is, is, you know, very commonly saying it's, it's about relationship building Mm -hmm. and skill building and learning together because um, researchers aren't trained to partner in a, you know, a necessarily with non-academics, mm-hmm. like this is, this is a strategy that they need to also understand what is the purpose of engaging with patient partners? What are they bringing? How do you work in true teamwork together? You know, how do you deal with those power imbalances? How do you ensure that your meetings and the work is, is culturally safe? And, you know, there's, those are ex- as important for the success of this relationship and team building as it is for the patient partners to, you know, learn maybe what are some of the basic terminologies, what are some of the strategies around research? You know, we're not trying to turn patient partners into mini academics necessarily, um, but they do need to understand the basics of health research too. Like what is research and what is health research and how does that whole process work and what are the timelines and, you know, how do they can integrate? So there's lots of, there's it's it's it is about 
just starting where people are at. That's what we talk about. We tend to work on one-on-one consultations or group consultations. Is what are your intentions? What are you trying to build? Where would you like to be two to three years from now? What are your intentions and rationale for why you're engaging with patient partners? Um, and then just, again, really, again, just deciding what specifically are your learning needs and we tailor and contextualize for that because there, you know, there are some standard resources out there, but it's, how do you use them? How does it apply in your setting? You know, does this work for you? So there's, yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways that we do approach it, but it is about, you know, again, baby steps, relationship building, understand it's a process. You're going to make mistakes and, you know, on both sides, you know, it's going to be challenging. <laughs> uh, but in the end, if you're focused and driven together to aim for a certain objective, we just hear so many stories over and over and over again about how important this has been and how fruitful it's been. Mm-hmm. And like you say, they just develop over time from this baby steps of putting their step feet in the water first to like truly swimming together and uh, making some really important decisions and working together. So it's exciting work. I think Larry and I both love our work and and you can tell we can talk about this forever. So this is kind of our passion. No, and I I mean, as a patient partner in a a number of different um, projects and, and I was one that got my feet wet and it was baby steps and how it's evolved for me. I, I, I mean, I'm a patient that can truly attest to that. I mean, this podcast in itself is, is a project that has been, has come out of being a patient partner in a research cluster. And so part of this is just to help other patients understand and want to become involved in patient-oriented research. And to also, for the researchers that are listening to this podcast, that there are people like you that are able to help them in their research um, in their research world as well to engage with patient partners. Because I think, too, in, in the world of, I mean, we, we're working with sepsis patients, and so that's why I brought up that, that level of trauma um, for patients that have experienced sepsis, because a lot of them have been in the ICU. A lot of them have been very extremely, like extremely ill, critically ill, have lost limbs, have been very, very sick, right? Um, and so with that level of illness and with other illnesses that have been that critically ill comes a um, I, sometimes, I guess, comes that distinguish difficulty distinguishing between advocacy and advisory or actively involving becoming actively involved in research and so are you able to explain some of the differences and similarities between advocacy and engagement and the role in patient oriented research if there are any or if that is a completely separate piece when it comes to being an advocate or being an active patient partner in research? Why don't I start on that one, Larry? Because, I mean, this is a discussion we've had is that, you know, we tend to think, you know, we live in a world that's called patient-oriented research, (laughs) but patients 
don't live in the world of research. They live in the world of their lives, right? And particularly where they're usually coming from in these opportunities to try and maybe engage as a partner in research is coming from a position of advocacy. This is their life, right? Mm -hmm. They're lived and living experience and they're often engaging across the spectrum of advocacy for awareness about sepsis, right? Or maybe advocacy for better funding for sepsis, or maybe advocacy around supporting better care and service delivery, or in our case, advocacy to support more meaningful patient engagement and research. So I don't see advocacy as being separate. And I actually would see that partnering as a patient partner in a research activity or a project and organization that what the person is bringing is their lived and living experience, the relevance to it, but it's for the purpose of being an advocate in many ways. Like the purpose, the role of a patient partner is besides, you know, informing some of the decisions around the specifics about research, but foundationally it's about ensuring that they're advocating for the patient's perspectives, right? Like, are you ensuring, you know, that this is, a safe space, you know, are you aware of some of these trauma, you know, issues in patients, you know, that's going beyond, is this a good survey? <laughs> or do you like this question? Right. It's, it's really about ensuring that they're there to be representative of and, and an advocate for ensuring you know, that the patient's perspectives are included in the research piece. And I don't, I don't see it as being separate from their role and care and service delivery and, or anything else, but that's my perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I don't know, Larry, what are your thoughts about that? No, you're totally right, Lynn. I think that, that definitely advocacy is, uh, engagement is a form of advocacy. I think it's all about what your expectations are and managing those. You know, I hear um, patient partners come to me and say that the reason why they got involved in, in research in the first place was because they had a particular experience and they think the health system could do better. Mm -hmm. They wanted to give back. They wanted to, to channel their lived experience into something that's going to make a difference in how healthcare is delivered. And of course, that's a very different kind of work than research because when you're getting involved and in maybe changing the way a clinic runs, if you're advocating for that, then that's very different from what sort of um, interventions, what sort of services are delivered in that clinic, because that can take a long time. Research takes a long time and it, it can be, it's, it's a whole different world for, uh, from the care, the care world, as Lynn said. So I think um, managing expectations is really important so that when a person goes into a research world, they know that they're not going to be changing next month, what's happening in a particular clinic. The changes, the, the contributions they make might take a couple of years or longer to, to really translate into meaningful changes in practice. So I think, I think that's probably one of the key differences. I mean, it's all different types of advocacy, but it's a little bit of different focus. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a great answer because I think that um, sometimes we struggle with, that's, I mean, as a patient, uh, and as a patient myself, the the reason why I became involved was I didn't want another mom to go through what I went through with my child. And, and to me, that was a, I guess that's a form of advocacy in trying to change a care delivery system in a way. Right. Um, but in the long term, 
it was trying to change a lot of other things over the course of of Ellie's development. And so I think that, you know, there's and patients are are saying that too. I mean, our our Shannon's case, she had sepsis four times and and or three times, and then a possible fourth time. And she didn't want she wants to have early recognition of sepsis so that there's quicker treatment and that she's not septic for a fifth time, right? So I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why and and it does boil down for advocating for, I guess, better care or change in the system. And research at the end of the day drives that too. That's why at the end of the day, I think everyone is doing research so so that they can come up with a better delivery of care or a a life-changing or um, life-saving treatment for a for a certain type of cancer, right? Or something along those lines. So no, I, I, that's a, I mean, to me, that, that that's a great answer. And I think that's a really great answer for patients to hear as well as researchers. And it m- might just give that patient partner that, okay, I, I can do this. I can come and be a patient, become involved in patient oriented research, because even though I feel like I want to advocate, I can still be involved because it's, it's not different, right? Yeah, and then I think that comes down to the match for the patient partner is the focus of the research that they're wanting to kind of become partner or engage with relevant or to them as well. Is it consistent with or is it likely going to move towards, like you say, maybe is this research focused on early awareness or early identification, then that might be a research project that fits well with this person's underlying motivation and sort of prime driver for why they're wanting to be involved. And so those are that it's exploring those motivations and understanding that that's what you're bringing to the research team. And, um, you know, but the hat is always on the research team as a patient partner is there as a patient partner and trying to provide that voice for or perspective of the patient partner, because that's the experience that the rest of the team just simply doesn't understand. They do not understand that lived experience. And it's such an important piece to bring into it, uh, into the research team. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's important for the team to understand that as well, that this person is not a mini researcher, right? They're not a statistician. They're not a methods expert. But they're certainly experts in the area of sepsis and sort of their personal lived experience and have a capacity to speak from that experience to inform the research that's happening. So that's advocacy, but it's also meaningful engagement. Like they're there for a reason and a purpose. Right. And it comes, really, it comes down to what Larry said. It's that relationship building. Like we need to have these conversations with the researchers and with with the patient partners, with the clinicians, and find out about what every one is there for, and what is like what is meaningful to these patients, and what they wa- how they want to be involved. Yeah, and that's going to change over time, mm-hmm. right? And so it's that ongoing. That's what relationships are. They're, mm-hmm. they're ever changing. They're mm-hmm. never static. And, and it's about making sure that you're checking in. You're making sure that it's working on both sides and understanding that this is, you know, two or three or four way relationship that you're working on that, you know, everyone, everyone needs to be engaged in the process of meaningful and respectful relationships 
and, you know, and working together with each other is, is an important piece of how this works. And I, there's always a, a, you know, getting patients to become involved. How, how is that happening? How are patients becoming involved? Uh, That's a really good question because, you know, what we have to remember too, that researchers have their training, their experience, and they have their, um, their research programs in place. And when they're looking to engage a patient partner in their work, they often have an idea. I have this project. I want a patient to give me some help with this. But a patient coming into that work might have the exact opposite. You know, they, might, they don't necessarily know how research is done or, the, or how the research world exists. But they might have some really good ideas about what they want to see happen. And so sometimes there just isn't a good um, mesh, I guess, right? Sometimes there is not a good connection there. So it's really up to the researchers to be really clear about what, the, what they're wanting from a patient partner. And it's up for patient partners to really be clear about what they're wanting to do and to make sure that those are matching and to find out ways of making them work together. So I think that there's, there's that, um, that piece. I think I might've said that before about managing expectations, just this idea that we have to, um, to be really clear about what the parameters are. I, I've had experiences where patient partners became were recruited into a project as a, as a partner, but then it turns out that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to be a participant in a study. Um, maybe they wanted to advocate for, for health services, but they didn't necessarily understand what they were getting themselves into to be a partner in a study because there's so much learning that's involved. And time. And time. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, you know, and I think that has to be that it's, it, it, again, baby steps, right? The idea that you have that conversation, you, you talk about what it is you're looking for. You're, you, the researcher has to be open to, to adapting and changing. And the partner has to be open to learning and being able to provide meaningful input. And, you know, we always talk about diversity in patient engagement. This is a topic that comes up always in research and in research studies and, and making sure that we have an equal voice and a voice that is diverse in patient engagement. And how can, how can researchers organically support this? How can, how can we as researchers organically support diversity and patient engagement? Do, do I want to start with that, Lynn, or do you want me to? Go ahead, Larry. That, that's, <laughs> again, that's a whole long, a an hour question. A, yeah. a loaded question, an How hour long. How much time answer. do you have? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, really, it's like we have, I would, the questions I would have is what does diversity mean, right? For, you know, and I go back to my, my research training in qualitative health research, where you might do, do very intense interviews with individuals, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to interview with a huge, diverse group of people, but you're going really in-depth into an in-depth understanding. And that's kind of what happens with research, where you want um, a partner to, to get really deeply embedded in the research so they can make meaningful um, decisions, help you make meaningful decisions. So there's that aspect about diversity that, I, that, I, mm-hmm. that sort of frames this discussion. And also thinking, you know, it, it, if, if you're a researcher and you want to have a, a diverse group of patient partners in your team, um, what are you, what lived experience are you hoping to find from that? And, and um, I think Lynn often says something along the lines of, you know, if you're, you have people at the table, what is the lived experience that's missing? 
because that's the diversity that you really right. are needing to find. And sometimes that's going to match up find. with what we see in the equity, justice, equity, and diversity and inclusion world. We talk about ethnicity or culture or race or, or dem- social demographic features that might indicate diversity. But how does that inform lived experience? That's the question that we wanted right. to ask. Yeah, and I think that's that's an important uh, characteristic that, you know, really what we're bringing a patient partners into the research team is to bring that lived and living experience and helping the patient partner to understand it first is their lived and living experience is their lived and living experience, mm-hmm. right? And someone who may be the same ethnicity, the same gender, the same age, and something else isn't going to have that same experience. And so it's the diversity of the lived and living experience, the different perspectives that's important to consider, you know, and that's what I said, who's, whose voice is not being heard, right? And why? And so what lived and living experience is not at the table and why, right? And so we do run into the problem in patient-oriented research, the same as in, you know, recruitment of participants in research, um, that you often get the same people, (laughs) you know, volunteering to become a patient partner because they have the, they're able to participate. They have the, you know, they're, they have the time to participate. They have the financial security to participate. You know, they're very commonly look very much like me, you know, I'm older, you know, woman and who's approaching retirement age and, um, you know, has some of that time to participate. Um, I may have the lived and living experience, but it might be very different than a younger woman or a, a man, for example. And so that's the piece that, you know, we really try to work with our the teams to really think about what specific lived and living experiences do and voices and perspectives do you have at the table? What's missing? And also helping the patient partner understand they are not expected to be, to provide that diverse perspective and speak for every single patient partner and all of their lived and living experiences. But what they can do is help the research team identify who's not at the table. What are the, what's the breadth of the experience that's missing and provide some suggestions and ideas of how to include those voices. Right. And, and really inform, you know, they have the network, they're working in this world, they live in this world. So they may able to help tap into people that maybe aren't even aware of this opportunity or are extremely fearful of this opportunity or really um, skeptical about the Mm -hmm. opportunity. And so that's what, you know, the, we talk about trying to build that diversity is really, again, and, and um, just making sure that patient partners don't think they have to be representing everybody in all of the diverse lived and living experiences as well. So it, it's that's kind of a, a really interesting challenge that we come up with frequently. Mm-hmm. But it is often, you know, access and equity and inclusiveness barriers that you have to consider. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an explicit conversation you have to have. Mm-hmm. But that's a good way to approach it. A, a good question to ask is what voice is missing, and, and that's that's a great a great a great question to ask, um, because you're right every everyone's experience is different, and so to ask that preface that question that way is is a good way to then just really break down w- who do you need then who do you need 
whose voice do you need to have by asking that question? So, well, I'd like to just close off by, first of all, thanking you both so much for coming um, and having this discussion. I think it's so valuable for both researchers and, and patient partners that are wanting to be involved. If anyone that is listening does want to be involved, where can they go to find out more information on becoming involved in a patient, as a patient partner? Um, are there, is there a directory of opportunities? Um, I know ReachBC is a really great um, website resource to go to look for um, and to create a profile on. It's based on your, um, like what you're interested in. Is there any other opportunities or places they can go? There's also in BC, we have Patient Voices Network, which advertises uh, engagement opportunities, probably shorter and less involved than the sort of research opportunities that you might find and reach. But um, they certainly are a good entry point into that. I think that if someone is connected to a certain group, an advocacy group like sepsis, for example, then oftentimes those advocacy groups might have connections with researchers. Um, that they can follow through with. Um, what else would you recommend, Lynn? Yeah, and, and also just reaching out to uh, cl clinicians, the people that are providing your care and service delivery, um, just to to find out, you know, if they're involved in research or, you know, those kinds of opportunities to, to, to learn as well. Because sometimes um, what you might put in reach as your profile doesn't match exactly what the researchers are looking for. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of mismatch matching in that. And so it's about reaching out. And, and I think we, we flip it around the other way for, for researchers to ask, how do you recruit patient partners? Is, is there's multiple platforms and you have to be really trying and reaching out across all of them. So, and I mean, we would be remiss not to also plug our own work, mm -hmm. <laughs> the BC support unit yeah. and our website. And, you know, there's always lots of resources there. There's a place to ask questions and, you know, what we do is try and redirect and help people as well. So, um, and in, Wherever you are in Canada, there's a support unit and they offer similar opportunities. So reaching out to the support units across Canada as well is another good opportunity. Okay, great. Well, thanks again so much to you both. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'll talk to you both very soon. Thank, thank you very you. much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Not only is sepsis a life-threatening illness, but as you have heard, it can have lasting effects both physically and emotionally. It affects not only the infected, but their families and their loved ones. We hope that by sharing these stories and speaking with the experts you heard from today, that it will connect with others who have been affected by sepsis in some way. If you or someone you know would like to learn more or get involved in any of our research projects, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca. If you have listened to our entire podcast and would like to provide feedback, we would like to invite you to complete a survey, which can be found on our website, sepsis.ubc.ca forward slash podcast. And finally, we would like to thank you for listening to our podcast, and we'll close out with an original song by our last guest, Shannon McKenney.
This has been the University of British Columbia's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors who have come forward to share their stories. Our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, and researchers, and our patient advisors. If you liked this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Let us know what you think about this week's topic and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. For links to topics on this episode, additional resources, or to listen to other Action on Sepsis podcast episodes, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast. Action on Sepsis is a plugged-in media production for the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening.